Hello, and welcome to another edition of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Joining myself, Gary, is Mr. Tiltariser. Hello. Now, we have once again been to the movies, but not really a double bill since these two films are, I think, 44 years apart. So it's not really likely you would have got them in a double feature showing anywhere. I think our listeners know the connection between Esca Policeman and The Boys in Blue. I think actually this falls under the category of be careful what you wish for, because having watched the four Markham and Wise films, you then suggested, why don't we do The Boys in Blue? And I took you up on that offer. This is a damned lie. <laughs> it's true. And that everybody remembers. doesn't matter what you remember, because unfortunately for you, there's an actual recording of it that's out there on the internet. Of you suggesting Boys in Blue. No! And me saying, oh, we'll never get around to it. And then saying, actually, tell you what, shall we do it? But you started the suggestion of Boys in Blue. Speaking of which, when are we going to do the Boys in Blue? Yes, it's fine. It's on the list. We'll never get around to it. And it is appropriate because it ties in with our talk last week about Morecambe and Wise. As you say, be careful what you wish for. It's that thing of getting to make a movie and it not being very good, apart from the fact that the intelligence men is good to very good. That's what happened here with Cannon and Ball, but we felt it was a missed opportunity if we talked about the boys in blue without taking a really good look at Ask a Policeman. And I found Ask a Policeman to be a bit of a surprise. I know I watched Will Hare films in my childhood, and I think it was last year or the year before that I watched The Goose Steps Out. But that's Ealing. Will hate. That's a bit different from his Gainsborough stuff. And this gave me a headache. <laughs> you didn't like the speed of the delivery, did you? It's not so much a matter that I didn't like it. I wasn't in a good place for it. The reason this podcast is going out late is because I just point blank refused to stick to our normal schedule because we had a horrific October heat wave here in California and we were getting up to temperatures of like 108 degrees Fahrenheit. I said, I'm not recording at 108 degrees Fahrenheit, because to be able to do that, I'd have to have so many fans on that either my recording would be unlistenable, or if I actually removed it with noise reduction software, I would sound like a 6kbps MP3 <laughs> or real player or something like that by the end of it. This one could end up being a weird one, because there's a number of different threads to pull together. Threads, that's the word. I don't know if you've ever used the term on the show. It's something I think you and I talk about when we're doing research, is this idea of the breaking of the thread. Ah. And it's this idea that there's something running through British entertainment that broke sometime in the 80s and 90s. I mean, when we talk about Will Hay and Maud Marriott and the other person who's also called Maud Marriott, I can only remember one name for the two people. <laughs> Graham Moffat, isn't it? Graham that's Moffat, it. that's Finally right, yes. Fell in place. We could even talk about those in terms of Commedia dell'arte. The, I mean, I know that's Italian, but we could talk about tracking that that far back. He's gone all Abogans on me again. I don't know what he's talking about. He's gone Welsh. Pronounced Abogans correctly. Five points. <laughs> now, and it's not a matter of blaming alternative comedy. Alternative comedy was an element in this breaking. But I think more of our point is it happened at the commissioning level. It ends up that we start having the mainstream being somehow 
eager to split itself off from the mainstream of before, and then suddenly realizing it's thrown the baby out with the bathwater and desperately trying to cling to the mainstream while also still being willing to jettison if you appear uncool. As a countertell, you can point to people like Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse, who I think are post-alternative but fit right in with what happened before them. Like I say, this could get weird because we're not entirely sure what we're talking about. It's just some faint feeling that we have of why things are like they are now, of why all TV presenters are kind of dead behind the eyes because they're trying not to commit too much to any idea they're putting forward because you might sneer at them. Let's just go with this. This is going to be, like you say, it's going to be a bit of an unusual addition this one because i don't know there's going to be a great deal for us to analyze in terms of the two films which we'll talk about at length but yeah i think this is a good topic for discussion and this is probably as good a platform as any other to have that discussion so a couple of things that are going through my mind just now if any of these tie together and fit then so be it so the first thing that springs to mind we may have mentioned this on the podcast before and i don't have the precise quotation in front of me but i'm, I'm paraphrasing so this is an eric sykes autobiography he talks about having won i think one of the awards at montreux for an edition of sykes and then he describes going into a meeting with bill cotton and strangely he says that bill cotton wouldn't even turn round to look at him that bill cotton was facing the other way when when sykes went into the room but he suggests that cotton had said to sykes You've had your day, Eric. We're in alternative comedy now. That's actually, as far as I remember, that's actually the phrase that he uses. And even that strikes me as odd because it doesn't even sound like the kind of phrase that Bill Cotton would use for a start. Having said that, mid-1980s, you've got things like Happy Families, for example, ending up in a pre-watershed slot on BBC One. You have things like Comic Relief, for example, 1988, the, I suppose you would say the alternative comedians are somewhat to the fore as far as that show is concerned. And you've still got a lot of the sort of traditional BBC people, people like Little and Large, for example, or involved in the show doing the skits and what have you. But they're sort of bit players. They're not really front and centre. Now, the funny thing about that is, I think it was a 10th anniversary documentary. If it was an omnibus documentary when Richard Curtis described I think it was only a matter of a few weeks, maybe a couple of months before the transmission of Comic Relief in 1988, actually asking Frank Muir to host the entire evening. And Frank Muir said, I think maybe you want someone a tad younger for this role. So strangely enough, it's not necessarily that the, the, the automatic idea was going to be that this was going to be you know, sort of a starting sort of showcase for all the people who have come in just the last 10 years or so. But there's something that happens when we were talking about doing this recording. We looked up some details on Cannonball's website because in particular, we're looking for details about they had a period when they were not getting on too well and they really weren't speaking to one another. And eventually they patched things up and, and made up and so on. But it seems that this particular film was towards the early part of that sequence about sort of a three-year period or so on cannonball's website in the biography section it actually says on there ah cannonball their type of comedy was falling out of favor with tv executives who are now commissioning things like the young ones and blackadder and so on and it is something that you hear again and again that this idea that 
there is, as you say, this break in continuity. I don't know that this is necessarily changing public tastes, but you've got things like, say, Girls on Top on ITV, whereas maybe a few years earlier that would have been strictly a Channel 4 type show. And yet you've got producers like Paul Jackson, for example, who bridged the gap. Paul Jackson was producer for Cannon and Ball, as well as the young ones, for example, had worked with the two Ronnies previously. I suspect that he probably wouldn't go along with the idea that there is this significant break in the evolution of entertainment. But I think it's really early to mid-1980s. That's really when it happens. That's when it happens as far as the schedules are concerned. And you can see shows which are sort of variety shows and traditional comedians, they're just creeping ever so slightly earlier in the schedule now. They're no longer front and centre. And, well, it leads us to, I guess, the present day, like you say, where there is an attempt to sort of make out everything's just as it always was. I know know that it upset you and upset me as well. That instance, I think, was it Children Need a few years back when they had the holograms of Markham and Wise accompanied by (laughs) Radio X breakfast host Chris Moyles. Now, I won't mention his name because obviously he doesn't know that I'm going to refer to him on here, but a chap that I've worked with previously, that night on Twitter, and he's he's a younger guy, he's about, I think, about sort of 15 years or so uh, younger than me, and he works in intelligence. Oh, outrage. He tweeted on that night how delighted he was with that. He, he absolutely <laughs> loved it. He loved that sequence, and I think that he was principally coming at it, because he's a bit of a techie guy, so I think that he was principally coming at it from the point of view of the technological feat. But I suspect that people maybe a little older were just looking at that and thinking that's sacrilege. And probably looking at it in the same way as the infamous Reeves and Mortimer aping Mock and Wise Tom Jones routine from back in 2000, for example. You can actually, you can see it in the audience reaction. You can see it on Bruce Forsyth's face in the audience. You can see Bill Cotton shaking his head, even as he's politely applauding. And we all know, of course, that Ronnie Barker, he was livid and harangued Greg Dyke after the show and said that should be cut out, that shouldn't go to air. Moving forward, what's done is done. And I like a lot of the stuff that's from the 1980s. There's a lot of the stuff from the 1990s that I really despise. And particularly, I think maybe this is sort of like, you know, things like panel shows and what have you, that a lot of them have a really nasty edge to them. And some of them still do. I think shows like, for example, Would I Lie to You, I think that's a really enjoyable show. Everybody seems to be on the same page. There's no one-upmanship there. It's a nice, fun, silly show where you've got people of different generations all appearing side by side. Something like Mock the Week, I still sort of associate that with the 90s mindset. I don't know if CD is the right word, but it's very sort of nasty. And you get the impression that perhaps the people who are even on the show together don't particularly care for one another and are trying to sort of get in on top of somebody else's line or whatever it may be. Is any of this making any kind of logical sense? Because this is just a stream of consciousness for me just now, but is does this fit any kind of narrative? What do you reckon, Till? Every time we get close to making a point, I keep thinking that, well, yeah, yeah, but that's not the point we're arguing. That's not... So it's it's an odd thing. It's why I said this was going to be odd, because... It's an incomplete idea. 
Some people treat incomplete truths as lies. Always very jumpy about saying something and having some office bore just contradict it because they found one counterexample and one counterexample disproves all other examples. And what is it we're calling for? We don't know. It's just a faint feeling on my part. And this is partially because I'm not that into television comedy the same way that Gary is. So there is a certain element that I've looked away for a while and then looked back and noticed the differences more. We're not saying, well, obviously it should have been a massive pan. Everybody should have just been all working together. It just seems that somebody used a sledgehammer to crack this walnut. And yes, there was a little bit too much, we're going to get you, from one generation. There was also intransigence on the part of another generation. Oh, I don't hold with these new alternative comedians, said somebody in 1998. No, I think deep down we're blaming management. We're blaming the way that it was done. Okay, maybe that Bill Cotton thing didn't happen the way Eric Sykes said it, but you get the feeling there are some people in television management who really get off on showing people the door. And the shift, the end of the 70s, beginning the 80s, gave these guys a chance to get their lengths on the table <laughs> and say... Mine's more alternative than yours. <laughs> I've dyed mine green. <laughs> Get out. Ha ha. Cannon and Ball are interesting in this respect because I remember there being an argument on a message board and peculiarly, <laughs> again, it was one of these, I don't hold with these alternative comedians. Good old fashioned comedy. That's what I like. And it somehow ended up as an argument about you either liked Cannon and Ball or you liked Rick Mail. Now, there's an interesting video <laughs> clip that nobody was posting, and I posted it, and as far as I remember, nobody reacted. So we've been doing some decorating downstairs. Uh, things have been changing, and there's now a big bookcase, communal bookcase. So we all have a few shelves each, and I pulled out some books to put there, and one of them was Life's Crickle Wood, Not Hollywood by Gary Morkham. And as I was putting in the shelf, I thought, actually, you know, I have a quick look about Cannon and Ball. Eric Morkham thought Cannon and Ball had the stuff and i think he lived long enough to see that it wasn't going to happen i'm not sure how much of this is gary quoting eric or gary quoting himself or projecting on eric or me just being functionally illiterate and misinterpreting what's being said but i think there's an indication that eric thought that cannon and ball missed their opportunity and i think as we discussed previously they they had a falling out which was a protracted situation that went on for a number of years and that probably came just about the worst possible time in terms of whether they were going to reach stratospheric heights of their double acts so they've been on itv regularly since 79 and by i think you'd probably say in terms of their popularity and their drawing power so not just on television but they had a, a season i think it was jury lane in terms of their sort of pulling power, I think you'd probably say about 82 is probably going to be their peak. And then this disagreement sort of comes up to the, the surface. And by the time that they have resolved that, then they're already caught up by that point in the the changing sands. You know, the, the, the situation with alternative comedy coming up and you know traditional variety going down and so on. Whereas market-wise, of course, Okay, they were still on television when Alternative Comedy was in its very, very early days as far as creeping onto sort of BBC Two and what have you were concerned. 
but modern wives were already safe. You know, they, they were nobody was going to challenge their position in terms of comedic prowess by that point. You know, they've been together forty years for goodness' sake. So you know, their their sort of place in the history books was safe and sound. Whereas I suspect that perhaps if Cannon and Ball had been on better terms in 83, 84, thereabouts, it's, it's possible. I mean, they themselves have also said that one big mistake that they made, and I think that they were sort of talked into it by advisors, was that they had two offers on the table in 1988, and one was from the BBC, one was from Yorkshire Television, and they were advised to take the Yorkshire deal, which paid more. And pretty sure, I, mean, I don't, like I said, I don't have it in front of me right now, but I'm pretty sure that they've gone on record as saying that that was a significant error. And that had they gone to the BBC, they would have had the BBC's marketing power behind them. When acts or performers, presenters, when they go to the BBC, generally speaking, that's the period when you actually reach the the real sort of heights as far as your career is concerned. Because if you're a BBC person, then you are across that enormous operation. So you're on the traditional way, of course, was that your show goes on BBC One, you're going to get a repeat of your show on BBC Two. That's what worked for the two Ronnies. That's one reason why they were lured to the BBC from ITV. You're going to get bits and pieces on BBC Radio. You've got the promotional power of things like the Radio Times and so on. And just that gigantic machine is all working in your favour. And I suspect in comparison to that, I moved to Yorkshire Television. No offense to it, but it's, it's not it's not quite it's not quite on the same level. And by 1991, I mean they've done the game show Cannonball's Casino, they've done one series of Plaza Patrol, the sitcom, and what have you. And that's pretty much it as far as anything long term on television. They continue obviously to make appearances throughout the 1990s and into the 2000s and, and so on. And latterly, they've actually had something of a renaissance. I mean, they, they do now separately they do sort of religious gospel type shows but they still work as traditional comedians as well and for quite some time they didn't actually release their live show on dvd they made a point of saying if you want to see us you got to come and see us live and yeah it, it seems that they've had sort of quite a, an upswing in, in fortunes over the past few years or so which is quite a nice thing to hear because it seems that the era of television basically sort of obliterating all other competition the vision that Stanley Holloway had in what was that film called that we watched? <laughs> Meet Mr. Remember. Lucifer. There you go. Yeah, exactly. So nobody's going in to see the performers in the theatres are playing to half full audiences, and this is the disgraceful power of television, this newfangled device, and all the evil that it wreaks and what have you. But anyway, it's nice to hear that performers such as Cannonball and others are still doing well in the live setting. I wonder if perhaps there's an element of perhaps people sort of thinking that what they're getting from the TV these days is not necessarily to their liking. And so things like live shows and DVDs and what have you offer an alternative, but hey-ho. Cannonball, funnily enough, we've spoken about Plaza Patrol and the fact that I used to set my alarm on Sunday mornings to watch it on UK Gold on Sunday mornings. I, I, I don't know if I've ever mentioned that before. Probably have. It, it helps to talk about it. Take a look, Mr. Jones is on there as well, and also High and Dry. It was, it was a triple pack. Cannonball's last series for London Weekend, if I remember correctly, was actually a sitcom in all but name. So it was still the half an hour format, and it was still called Cannon and Ball, but it was actually Cannon and Ball basically doing sort of long form sketches in their abode. And effectively, it was what Mockham and Wise had sort of envisaged 
as potentially the type of thing that they'd like to be doing, you know, sort of long form sketches in the flat. So it's interesting, actually, that you're talking about the comparisons between Cannonball and Mark and Wise, and they sort of found themselves, and I remember about 86, 87, they sort of found themselves doing the type of show that perhaps, you know, Mark and Wise might have ended up sort of going in that direction. So we'll hear then. I'm not overly familiar with his work. I think he's somebody that I should probably see a lot more of. I enjoyed Ask a Policeman in terms of, I enjoyed Will Hayes' performance in it. The film itself, it, it dragged a little bit for me. The plot was fairly sort of flimsy and what have you, but I liked the interplay between the three of them. In all honesty, I didn't really need there to be a lot of story. I mean, the story got in the way. I was quite happy just to watch the three of them. I would have been quite happy to just watch the three of them on stage, for example. The, the plot was just an annoyance. It was, it was just a nuisance. We're going to have to come back to the 30s and 40s in British film comedy. There's something about Will here that seems slightly out of sync with his peers in a pleasant way. If you think of George Formby and Gracie Fields and Frank Randall, and probably hugely successful people that even we haven't heard of, Will Hare's from a different class. Will Hare is an authority figure. Somebody who clearly belongs in the position he's in in terms of class, but is a bumbling fool. It's interesting to see somebody like that right at the centre of it. And he's funny in his own right. He's not like a comic maypole for the others to dance around. I think the obvious one that we should probably watch at some point is Oh, Mr. Porter. I don't know if it get me in trouble to say that. They kind of reminded me of the Three Stooges. Why would it get you in trouble? Because the Three Stooges are quite low on the comic regard list. When British comedians reach a level of success, I think the British get very protective of them. I think comparing any successful British comedy act to the Three Stooges Seems like something that might get a person in trouble. When you say they're not really highly regarded, I mean, is that... They're popular, but I don't think people talk about them in the way that they talk about Laurel and Hardy. I don't think people talk about them in terms of skill and putting things together. They're not in the heroic pantheon. It's interesting that you say about you're getting sort of Free Stooges vibes because I would have actually said, even though we're talking about Double Act compared to a trio, I was thinking more Abbott and Costello because of the fast-paced wordplay that was going on between the three of them. How fast was that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I liked that. I, could, I understand that that could perhaps become wearing after a while, but yeah, I'd, I'd like the pace of it. And in comparison to, I mean, obviously we'll get onto the boys in blue, shortly but in comparison to that i think you said at one point that don't believe and we'll never get to the boys in blue say goodbye to the boys in blue <laughs> i think you said at one point there was enough dialogue in the first 30 minutes of ask a policeman to fill the boys <laughs> in blue you probably have some left to spare but i like that i like the quick it immediately sent me running to norbert smith alive to watch the will silly section and that was just perfect. <laughs> yes. It wasn't even a parody. It wasn't like a perfect pastiche. Because Peter Goodright was playing Will Hare. And I rate Peter Goodright very highly after watching Who Do You Do? He's the one who actually sounds like the people he's meant to. Right, sh shall we talk about Commedia dell'arte? Uh, you can if you like. I... I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert. I'm just aware that it, it involves certain types it's from where we get the word zany. The character's the zany. And it involves authority figures and fools and mimes. And, okay, maybe I'm more familiar with this from hearing Harper Marx's son Bill talk about how 
in Commedia dell'arte they had the authority figure the mime and the fool and that fits the three Marx brothers very well of course there's no mime in this but there's little separations the old man is sometimes the authority figure in in the will hay moffat marriott trio the old man is also a fool. You've got, to, you've got the young fool and the old fool. It's just thinking of it, Groucho Marx's character evolved out of some sketches written by his uncle Al in which he was playing a school teacher. This eventually evolves into Groucho as authority figure who actually is interested in abusing his authority or just making fun of anybody who takes his authority seriously. Groucho Marx is his own punishment. If you don't look at him and go, hang on a minute, your moustache is painted on. Then you deserve everything you get. Will Hay actually is trying to be the person in the job that he's in. But there's just that, you know, again, growing out of that school teacher character. Have you ever seen The Ghost Train, by the way? No, I haven't. It'd be interesting to watch all the Will Hay films and see how many of them are basically rejigs of The Ghost Train, because this is kind of a rejig of The Ghost Train. A little bit of Dr. Sin thrown in at the side. I'm not sure, actually. I think there might actually be a theatre performance of The Ghost Train right now in Glasgow. I do, for some reason, I remember seeing a poster for it. Well, go along. I mean, you're an expert on old comedy, so you can go along and sit right at the front and go, <laughs> I got that. I wonder if anybody else did. <laughs> and then I'll get the Lionel Blair death stare. <laughs> do wish you'd keep quiet. You're ruining it for everyone. Your knowledge of election broadcasting history made you get one of the jokes in this that I didn't get. Yes. Now, tragically, I don't actually have the cutting in front of me, but there was an incident, I think it might have been 1935 election, when Will Hayes' radio broadcast was curtailed because they had election programming that was due to come on. And one of the speakers, I think, was due to be flying off to Zurich or something like that, so it couldn't be delayed. And it spilled out into the press. And eventually, Will Hay issued a statement and said, you know, we've, I've made up with the BBC. We're best of friends again. But there was a nice little dig in there in the, in the film about the fact that Will Hay's character has been faded out by the BBC. And he says, oh, BBC always faded out of the best act. But I don't really have that much to say about Ask a Policeman. It made me want to see some more Will Hay. Definitely. That's going to have to be the year after next, because Jaffa Cakes of Proust is full for next year. So do you think we can move on to The Boys in Blue? So this is one of the things that had me thinking about the breaking of the thread, because this didn't seem a surprise in how poor it was. And it made me think about how there comes a point in which you can't continue that vibe. Where does that inability come from? Because this is not coming from an outside force. There's no TV commissioners who are playing more alternative than thou here. Something goes wrong in the old-fashioned world. I mean, any announcement that they're bringing back the carry-ons makes more hearts sink than it does fly. There just comes a point at which any attempt to pick up that old-fashioned style and continue it ends up joyless. It's not joyless in Boys in Blue. As with Night Train to Murder, it's kind of jokeless. It's not lots of jokes that fall flat. It's lots of jokes that aren't really there. Or some of them are just third strand, keeping the vibe going jokes, which it's probably a really ugly and stupid phrase, but it's a phrase I do occasionally use, load-bearing jokes. If you look at a comedy show, some of the things people say, they're kind of funny, but they're not very funny, but it's okay. 
You just need a little thing to keep the atmosphere bobbing along. And then there will be a really killer line or a really brilliant look or a fantastic piece of physical business. And sometimes you find comedies that are made up of the little bits of funny just to lubricate the comedy. And they have no load-bearing jokes. And sometimes you'll get comedies that actually slow down so you can approach this tiny little joke slowly and then stop for laughter. It's interesting you say that. I mean, okay, I'm putting you on the spot here, but do you have any particularly favourite, I guess you would say, sort of throwaway lines or anything of that L? Because there's a couple of them that spring to mind for myself. But I, I know exactly what you mean. And yeah, it's nice when sometimes it's like, the little details, the little sort of seemingly throwaway lines actually sort of make me laugh the most. And it's sometimes actually, it's quite interesting seeing sometimes like little details that for whatever reason an audience doesn't react to. Don't have a script book in front of me, so I'm probably misquoting, but there's a lovely little bit in Forty Towers when the sort of newlywed couple arrive so one with Manuel celebrating his birthday and getting half cut and what have you. When Faulty realises that he's going to have to accommodate this couple, he says, but that means I'm going to have to put you in number 12. And that's all he says. And it doesn't, as far as I remember, it doesn't get a reaction from the audience, but you could visualise in Faulty's mind whatever is such a complete and utter pain about having to accommodate them in room number 12 and what extra workload this is going to put on his day. All of that's just flashing through his mind just like that and it doesn't get a huge reaction if really any reaction at all but it makes me giggle every time I hear it because you can see into Faulty's mind as if he knows that the linen there isn't cleaned or something or he's going. it means he's going to have to in some way get Manuel to help and you know how much of a problem that's going to cause. So The Boys in Blue starts with a crime, but it starts with the kind of crime that isn't bad for a comedy. It doesn't start with anybody being murdered. <laughs> it starts with a rather fussy, cartoonish art heist. Quite nicely done, with professionals-type music going on underneath. So when we meet Cannon and Ball, they're directing traffic, and the traffic's being held up by a farmer who's taking some cows to market. There's no crosstalk. You've just got Bobby shouting at the cows. Does he threaten to kill them? It's just like things like this. I'll kill them pigging cows! That's not really a line you can quote to your friends afterwards. And we have the fact that Tommy can just order the cows and the cows do as they're told. But it's not business, is it? Nothing's really happening. It's just there's some cows in the way. Okay, spoiler. Spoilers for the film. Had you seen this film before? No, not all the way through. So did you already know that the woman in the car with the boat being towed, did you know that that was Suzanne Danielle? Yes, because it looked like her. <laughs> I didn't realise I was meant to be surprised. It's like, oh, right, so, yeah, I saw her name at the beginning and there she is. Who the hell else is going to be in a film like this wearing shorts that high? She was supposed to be as undetectable as Patrick McGowan in an episode of Columbo. But Bobby comes and he's like, oh, blah. He doesn't make that noise, but he's a bit of a creep about it. Making a move in the car and then move back and just so he can kind of look at her moving around. I thought, well, that's a Suzanne Danielle part, isn't it? Where if somebody's in that kind of comedy going, whoa, what a fantastic bird. 
don't know what accent that was. I don't know where that came from. But that it's going to be Suzanne Danielle. Who the hell is surprised? If they wanted us not to know, she should have just been kind of dressed down and mousy or something. I got the impression that that was supposed to be like a sort of, not a key plot twist, but you obviously weren't supposed to know that that is Suzanne Danielle, who later turns up sort of more recognisably. And yet we haven't had the reveal yet. Supposed to I didn't realise we weren't supposed to know. No. <laughs> I thought it was just kind of like, okay, fine. So, so only now you say it that actually... Because it's like she's just doing a Suzanne Danielle thing. You know, if they wanted us to know, then there would have been a point in which she sort of dipped the sunglasses and we saw. It's like if there's a movie and you see Jimmy Durante's name in the opening titles and then the heroes encounter a guy with a big nose playing the piano going... Ah, da, 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 da. Ah, yeah. <laughs> And then, then later on, <laughs> Jimmy Durante comes in not wearing the same kind of hat and glasses. <laughs> wow, <laughs> who's this character? Never seen him before. You must have encountered this before, and it's, it's a real bugbear of mine. It's like when you get, it tends to be something that's more sort of modern day, where you get the little bit that's after the credit sequence, and yet the credit sequence has revealed and special guest star name, and you think, I don't remember seeing name in this. And then the little bit after the credits pops up, and there's name. It's like, <laughs> oh, thanks for that. <laughs> but yeah, I know what you mean. There's not a great deal going on early on in this. It's very pedestrian. It stumbles along. Part of the humour is that uh, Bobby starts quoting the theme tune from Rawhide. And he says, get them doggies rolling. And the farmer goes, they ain't doggies. That's not really a joke. It's not. You could put a joke in there. We didn't really explain what the plot of Esca Policeman was. Did we? Well, basically, you've got a situation that different reasons are given in, in, in two instances, but we have the idea of a police station where there's nothing doing. So there's not been any recorded crimes, no arrests, nothing. And eventually, the head office gets wind of this and says, well, we don't need to keep the station open then. So the officers at the station decide what we need to do is we need to create a crime which we ourselves then solve in inverted commas so that we have a reason for continuing to exist as our own independent station but also part of it is is that this is such a small town that the policemen also run the local convenience store the village shop i was more interested to see that side of things i actually would have quite liked to have seen a little bit of business where they're trying to actually be proper police officers and also trying to serve Mrs. Blewett with her quarter pound of boiled sweets or whatever. Has that have been quite nice if, if it had been basically a merger of Dixon of Dot Green and Open All Hours for at least a couple of sequences? That would have been quite fun. Because I think one thing that occurred to me is in Ask a Policeman, the reason there isn't really any crime reported is, is that the police are actually behind a lot of it. When it's established that there's been no instances, no reported instances of poaching, it's then established that it's uh, more Mary and Gray Moffat are the local poachers, and they're also the police. I remember thinking, this is going to be difficult in Boys in Blue. By 1982, openly corrupt cops is a problem. Read out some of the names in the cast list, and I will touch upon another problem this film has. Okay, so we've got as the chief constable, we've got Eric Sykes. Chief Superintendent is Jack Douglas, who doesn't appear anywhere near enough. I'd like to see much more Jack Douglas in the film. Edward Judd is the local who you reckon is going to be the villain. You've got Roy Kinnear, 
You've got John Pertwee, who is playing a role which is a sort of direct copy, so to speak, from one of the scenes in Ask a Policeman as part of the sort of the plot twist. Billy Burden was the aforementioned farmer. And Ross got probably a favourite sequence of all, because it had just a one single little throwaway line that made us both laugh. Um, Arthur English. That was the line. That was the joke. I won't tell you what it was. The thing to point out here is that Eric Sykes, Jack Douglas, and John Pertwee are all playing their parts straight. They are not funny in this. They are not given opportunities to be funny in this. If you had three dramatic actors, Pertwee's a little bit caricatured in his portrayal as a sailor, but three non-comic actors would play the part essentially the same. And I'm trying to work out why. I don't want to point the finger, but could it be that Cannon and Ball, or somebody somewhere in their organisation, is worried about taking the comic spotlight away from Cannon and Ball? It's just this perverse thing. You get Eric Sykes in a movie, a comedy movie, and just have him barking orders and talking about police administration. He's not even a particularly effective straight man in this. He just moves the plot. He doesn't do anything silly. There's a scene, and it's Eric Sykes and Jack Douglas talking to each other, and it is pure exposition. I don't recall there being any jokes in it. Maybe there were, but they kind of passed me by if they were there. There's even a bit where I thought I can see what the punchline is and it didn't come. They go and visit Roy Kinnear, who is the local squire, and he shows off his new TV and says it's completely portable. They say, oh, right, how do you get it upstairs? And he just rings a bell and his bottle comes in and he says, can you take that upstairs? And I thought, oh, what's going to come in? Is he going to ring? And the bottle's going to come in and he's going to be an old feeble guy with a long white beard. And he picks up the TV and goes, ah, and hobbles out. No, it's he's just a butler. And he comes in and he wheels the television out. And then later, on, of course, he's asked to bring it back down. But that's it. I couldn't find it. I was looking for a review of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie because it was easier than trying to watch the movie again. Where somebody's saying that they edited out individual words and lines to stop them from being jokes. And this is what this felt like. Opportunities for standard bits of business presented themselves and then just went past without the business. Do you know, I was thinking about this after we'd seen it. Do you remember there's a two Ronnies silent short called, I think, By the Sea? from about 1982, and some years previously, of course, Ronnie Barker had made Futtock's End. I was sort of thinking, do you know what? This would have been much more suitable as a 50-minute comedy film made for TV. There was not enough material here for an hour and a half. If you were to truncate it into something like three quarters of an hour, then you could have a relatively fast-paced story that just moves along, and I suspect it probably wouldn't be sort of half as bad, but I think the fact that it is over long, and obviously it's got to be a certain length to qualify to be the cinema. I mean, I think I'm right in saying that Naked Gun, I think, is barely more than an hour and a quarter. I mean, that, that's that's a very short film for the, the cinema, but I think that's sort of atypical. But yeah, I mean, sort of an hour and a half is pretty much the sort of minimum you would expect, and yet it really does feel like a stretch. It just does not feel as if there's enough material to go around here. Last week, we're talking about Night Train to Murder and saying about how it was made on videotape. Boys in Blue shows that film can't necessarily save you. Doesn't really look like a cinema film. Doesn't even look like a TV thing either because it's obviously shot 35. 
So it doesn't look like an episode of Mind or anything, but it, when they're in the police station, it looks like a camera is pointed at a set. does not feel like a location. You said it, this is a single camera. This is not multi-camera setup. What I mean is it doesn't look like a movie. This must have looked odd at the cinema. There's obviously something happening in the lighting or the focus, some technical thing that I will never understand. I've never entirely understood it because, I mean, there used to be a time, and I think that time has now gone, where you could tell how old a film was just by looking at a few seconds of footage. I mean, yeah, I mean, you can still tell looking at a film sort of from the 80s or the 70s, 60s, 50s, and backwards from then, whereas a film from 1997 isn't necessarily going to advertise itself as easily. At some point, I think film technology is kind of plateaued, but I know if I tried to get my head around that, I don't think I would. People are shouting about lenses and film stocks, probably even saying focus pulling and things like that, and I'm getting scared. But it doesn't look cinematic. So more examples. I mean, there's a bit where they decide to go investigating a suspect at night. And there's just that bit of jumping in a field and rolling over and Bobby rolls into a cow pet. That's the joke. I think we mentioned this when we were watching this as well. I don't know if it's just the current version of the print that's doing the rounds. This this film has been released on DVD. It's it's been shown on ITV4 in the last few years. There there are sequences which I found it very difficult to make out what was going on because it was so dark. This seems also a good time to just remind listeners of the strange instance of the Man About the House film, in which there's a scene with Sally Thompson and Doug Fisher, which is supposed to be at night and outdoors. And in the original print, which was available on DVD some years ago, and it's for free, it looks exactly the part. In the remastered HD version, which plays <laughs> nowadays, it's broad daylight. <laughs> And you you get the impression that something has slightly gone wrong somewhere. Right, one more mention for a non-joke in Boys in Blue. He's talking about um, searching for a suspect in the police computer and goes, all those microfish and chips. And that's about the level of the jokes. And, I mean, Cannon and Ball themselves, they have a nice relationship. They seem to be working well off each other. But the material just isn't there. Why? Why is it any attempt to revive the good old days of family entertainment is going to end up like that. Was this the point? I mean, was this unusual for its time, or had that point already happened? And this is it. After a certain point, you cannot... What year was that St. Trinian's film from the... I've never even seen so much as a frame of it, and straight away I'm I'm thinking, oh, hang on a minute. Oh, I thought you meant the the new one, Rupert Everett. No, you mean Rodney Buse, don't you? Yes, 1980. It's a British disease, isn't it? Yeah, no, 1980. And yes, you're you're right. It's at the point where we've already had Carry On Emmanuel, for example. So we've had Carry On, which doesn't feel like Carry On. This is going to sound ridiculous. Suddenly talking about Alistair Milne and what have you on a podcast about Will Hay and Cameron Ball. But I was thinking the other day, I don't know how this got into my head. It was probably during a bit of insomnia. I was starting to think, when did the BBC start to go into decline? And I sort of thought it's probably right at the beginning of the 1980s. Probably sort of 80, 81, thereabouts. When Alistair Milne becomes DG, and then within a few years we've got John Burt following 
into the corporation and you've got the sort of Alan Yentop era and what have you. And you just have what feels like a sequence of people coming into the BBC who we know too much about. They're too prominent. They get involved in too many sort of public scraps and what have you. They're trying to turn around what they see as a system which isn't working for whatever reason. And I just sort of thought, yeah, probably about sort of 80, 81 or thereabouts. And yeah, you could probably say that the beginning of the 1980s, I mean, is it also, is it something that fits into the rise of Thatcherism, for example? Is it something that fits into the rise of individualism and the, the breaking of the post-war consensus? Uh, is, is this something which comes out of the punk era? Is it something where suddenly individualism and not necessarily being part of the existing structures or following the norm. I mean, what is it? There's something, there's something there. And probably none of this is making any sense. I've just said, no, it's making too much damn sense to me. Unfortunately, it's why I'm not saying anything because once we start down that road, it's going to be very difficult to stop. But you can say that there came a time when I think the worst of radicalism and the worst of conservatism teamed up. And so everything that didn't make money got the sharp end of the stick and everything that wasn't cool enough got the sharp end of the stick you have an establishment that won't admit to being an establishment won't take responsibility and so you have a perverse situation where people who might be proposing radical or progressive ideas of whichever stripe socialism or one nation conservatism right or left, proposing something that will move things on into a good place are being treated as if they are the sticks in the mud. This does sound rather, uh, shall we say, similar to present day politics. I think it's been that way for a long time. It's interesting you're talking about decline because when you talk about decline, there's the point it starts to decline and kind of the point where... Not necessarily it can't be repaired, but repair is now going to be a massive, massive undertaking. I just want to clarify what I mean by the decline of the BBC, because some people might interpret that as saying, oh, the BBC just went to seed in 1980. That's not what I mean at all. BBC has been fantastic every single year of its existence and continues to be fabulous. But there's a point in which, for example, say, I was actually going to cite this earlier on, just uh, it slipped my mind, the John Cleese film, which I think is from 86, the one about what's the BBC ever given us, and so on. I was going to mention the fact that in the, the list of all the things that the BBC does, comedy and alternative comedy are actually two distinct classifications. It's probably worth underlining that point because I think that's something which probably gets missed in, you know, sort of lost to the sands of time, this idea that sort of alternative comedy sort of crept in and what have you. There was a point at which it was a tangible thing. It gets referenced in Last of the Summer Wine, for goodness sake. Jane Freeman says, we'll have none of your alternative comedy around here. It's an actual thing with a name and a tag. But the fact that the BBC's got to the point in the mid-1980s where it needs to start running defensive adverts, imploring people to consider the benefits of the license fee. There's all manner of reasons that you could cite as to why that was necessary, but the point is, it was necessary. And it feels like the first time that that was really necessary since We Are Your Servants, for example. And, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, £3 isn't much to pay for something new every single day and so on. It doesn't feel as if in the interim, 
it doesn't feel like during the 60s and the 70s and so on, it doesn't feel like the BBC was having to sort of publicly to the masses say, you know, think about what you're getting. Don't destroy this magnificent jewel in, in Britain's crown. Obviously, those kind of discussions are going on in the background all the time. The BBC's got to have its charter renewed you know, every 10 years and so on. But it feels like in the 1980s, suddenly it's got to the point where it's got to get defensive. Everybody's seen that meme that does the rounds of here's what the BBC was doing in the mid-1990s and here's all the things that it's doing today. You know, ipso facto, the BBC's you know, now much better than it was 20 years ago because it's doing so much more, which, which is just nonsense because it's doing more is not necessarily better. There's an argument for saying that it's spreading itself far too thin across too many different platforms these days. But point remains that something happens in the early 1980s and I'm sure there's all manner of different reasons that people could put forward and depending on your background, your politics, whatever it may be, you could probably argue a whole myriad of different reasons. But I don't think there's any doubt about it. Yeah, by the time Boys in Blue turns up in the cinemas, something has already happened. There's a change apparent in the air. Is it coincidence that 1983 is when the good old days comes to an end on BBC, for example? I said earlier, it's a British disease because it is bringing back grand old property reflective of the way things used to be, reflective of traditional British comedy. It's just always going to be grim. And they're always being announced. I watched the Dad's Army film from recently and it was worse than I expected. I remember in 20, I guess this would have been 2012, I think it was, there was a documentary on ITV about the Sweeney. And if memory serves, it was actually on ITV, ITV1, as it was at the time, which I thought was sort of quite surprising. And I thought, oh, blimey, documentary about the Sweeney on ITV1. That's, that's nice. And I thought it's probably going to have, you know, the usual kind of thing. It's going to have modern day talking heads. I'm going to hear why Josh Widdicombe, you know, is such a fan of the Sweeney and what have you. But I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. And then I suddenly twigged. I thought, hang on a minute. I know what's going on here. And I deliberately didn't watch it because I realized that effectively it was a con trick. I thought the first 40 minutes or so of this documentary will be exactly what I envisage. It's going to be lots of clips and lots of talking heads. Some of them will be relevant, some of them will not. And then there's going to be a point in which the voiceover says, but now in 2012, a whole new generation are going to enjoy the adventures of Jack Regan and co because it was going to be basically a promo for the film with Ray Winston. And that film, of course, came Hands and up, went. Who forgot that film happened? Exactly. See also Shane Ritchie in Minder on Channel 5, for example. The Steve Martin version of Sergeant Bilko. They appear, there's no demand for them, there's no reason for them to exist. And they come and they just completely vanish. Bilko's a bit different. This is what I'm talking about. It's a British problem. There's some lost Britain we're trying to revive. <laughs> oh no, no, no! Uh, what have you? What, no. have you what, have you? what have you remembered? No, the way things are now. I just suddenly said uh, we never. We can't do Jeff Kicks and Proust talks about Brexit, but it's there, isn't it? <laughs> There's a lost Britain that we're always trying to revive. We as the British people, and it doesn't work. Why? Why doesn't it work? Is it because the path to reviving that lost Britain will be too conservative and too progressive? 
Is that the problem? What is the problem? I don't know. I just okay, want right. To talk about old Italian movies <laughs> and pantomimes <laughs> and stuff like that. But it's this is it. This is because we started. Then we said we're going to talk about the breaking of the thread. That is the trauma that forms the scar that is Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Okay, right. I'm not, I'm not doing this deliberately to play devil's advocate because I can't stand people who do that, contrarians. I'm just going to throw this in because it's something that's just suddenly sprung to mind. I think there is also the possibility of us falling into the trap of thinking that the, the trend for trying to sort of revive things and say they're just as good as they always were and what have you, there is a falsehood about thinking that that is something which is new or at least something that was sort of invented within the past 15 years or so. Because if we care to go back to the radio times of, say, 1969, 1970, we're going to start seeing instances of shows being brought back to be remade in colour, for example. So you could say that about Sykes, for example. There's a colour series, I don't even know if it still exists anymore, of Bootsy and Snudge in 1974. I remember seeing a review or a little piece of TV critic in the Times once, who was praising the fact that the PG Woodhouse Playhouse had arrived in 1975 and was praising the fact specifically that it was in colour because previously, obviously, the adaptations might have been black and white. You've got instances of, say, the 1990s, we've, we've talked about these shows on the sitcom club. We've got the things such as the revival of Reginald Perrin without Leonard Roster. We've got the revival of the, the live reports. We've got the revival of the Doctor series, Doctor at the Top. And let's be honest about it, we're going to be talking soon enough on Jaffa about the Sgt. Pepper film, which I guess probably falls into that category as well, of something from 10 years previously, which is now being revived for a whole new generation. There are a lot of instances of this kind of thing going on. There's plenty of songs, for example, from the, the charts in the 1980s, where I didn't realise for years afterwards, I didn't even realise there were cover versions of songs from the 60s. So it's not necessarily a 21st century thing. In some ways, it does. It feels like it's more upfront now. And maybe that's just because every two weeks there's a damn story in the Metro about some, I'll be careful how I say this, some impresario saying, yes, we're going to bring back the carry-ons and here's all the people that are going to be in it. We reckon that this guy here will be the new Sid James and this guy will be the new Kenneth Williams and so on and so on. And you know perfectly well that it's never, ever going to see the light of day. But... It's not something that's brand new. Something's different, though, from some of those examples. A colour series of Bootsy and Snudge is different from those revivals we talked about on Sitcom Club. Even though Doctor at the Top, Legacy of Reginald Perry and Live About, that's mostly the original actors, something's happened. There's a self-consciousness that has crept in. I mean, Bootsy and Snudge in color. It's not going to be, Bootsy and Snudge has been completely reinvented for the 70s. Uh, it's not going to be like the old, it's, this is not your father's Bootsy and Snudge. Oh, for God's sake, please, please don't think that we're old fashioned. Please don't think that I'm a bit stuffy. Oh my God, no, no, no bang! <laughs> Britain's over, man. Britain's dead. We're not going to talk about Britain in November. <laughs> All being well, it's a little pilot of something you're going to hear from us in November because we keep rubbing up against the United States of America, which is right outside my window. And previous Novembers, we've, we've used Thanksgiving as an excuse to talk about American things. We're going to do that this November, but also we're going to separate it as a strand. So for next year, 
we might talk for eight weeks solid just about mostly American culture. The thing we're going to start off with is kind of a peculiar bridge between the United States and the UK and in some ways the Commonwealth. It might be two weeks time actually. When we get it done, it's done when it's done. In November, you'll hear from us when you hear from us and there'll be a new strand called Jafferville. Going to do two or three things under the name of this strand Jafferville and then next year we'll do Jafferville properly. In December, we're going to go back to finishing off what we have on the list for Jaffa Cakes for Proust for this year. I'm all up for this. Another quick thing. Uh, we're thinking of doing kind of a mailbag, but doing it over on Jaffa Cake Jukebox. Because mailbags, they're not really proper. So far, Jaffa Cakes for Proust has been just... It's all content that we're looking at. But we do want to answer some of your letters. And we've got lots of messages. And I mean, messages going back maybe even couple of years <laughs> that we've never really replied to or handled. So if you want to, tweet us or get in touch through Facebook. We will happily explain in-jokes and references, anything that we keep talking about and you don't know what we're talking about. I mean, we don't know what we're talking about either, but we'll try our best to explain. And as it's on Jeffa Cake Jukebox, you can request records but don't request anything specific request a certain type of record vague enough that we might have something that fits the bill and don't ask us when are you doing this show because lots of people ask us that and even we don't know the answer to that yeah can i just apologize by the way and uh, this still might be the case i don't know going into next year or whatever i apologize for the fact that I think probably more often than than in previous years, we've sort of had to sort of change our sort of time scale and had to post tweets saying, sorry, we're not going to be out on Friday, we're going to be a few days late and whatever. And some of that was to do with me, you know, my sort of workload and schedule and what have you sort of being a bit topsy-turvy this year. So we'll try and be a bit more disciplined, I think, in, uh, in 2018. So look for us in November and we will be welcoming you to Jafferville. But for right now... Thanks for listening from Jaffa Cakes for Proust.